Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As weekly, you're with Mike and Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron books of our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien. So, Ian, last time we put one back up on the shelf and we're pulling down another this week. Tell us all about it, please, sir. It's true, Mike. It's true. We finally got to the end of Chapter 10 of The Wine Dark Sea. Um, We had an American brig and a heavy frigate attacking the surprise, causing her to run before the surprise could execute her plan to attack and take three American merchantmen headed for China. The surprise in this chase lost her mizzen, made it just scraping around an iceberg away from the clutches of this American warship. That warship had signaled happy return, very gentlemanly stroke there, just as the ice had stopped her chase, leaving the surprise free to run. But then, but then the unlucky surprise lost her mainmast and rudder in a lightning strike. Luckily, once the lightning struck nipper-dolling crew member, the Jonah, if you like, was buried at sea, their luck had turned. They met Henage Dundas aboard the Berenice and his tender, a Baltimore clipper by the name of Ringle, of which more in a moment. And that was the end of chapter 10. We also spent some time talking to our guest, Paul Bryars, author of the Nathan Peake books. And we, we had a great time talking to Paul. We've got a little bit more coming up to say about the world of publishing and the world of Paul's work, but we'll talk more about that later. Anyhow, Mike, this time, chapter one of The Commodore, we're headed home to England. We're going to hear about the voyage home. We're going to hear about a very lucky backgammon game. We're going to hear about childhood hijinks, the ravishes of aging, potentially good news for Captain Aubrey, and a change of plans for Stephen. So, Mike, th- this is one of those turn the page and we're right where we left it, right? Yeah, yeah. And in and, and, and usual Patrick O'Brien, you know, we, we turn the page, we're right where we left it. Matter of fact, we've sort of jumped ahead, but not to worry. He'll always go back and fill us in, right? Yeah. <laughs> As we open the scene here in Chapter 1, we join the surprise, the Berenice, and the Ringle in the rain, just about to enter the English Channel. So we sort of, you know, we've kind of come right off the tip of uh, South America there. Boom, we're right at the mouth of the channel here. And we've got this interesting character. You mentioned last week, Ian, that the Ringle becomes a bit of a character in her own right in the stories here. And there's some interesting history about her name, right? Right. So at the end of Windark Sea, she was introduced to us as this Baltimore Clipper slash schooner. And she's introduced straight away, almost without preparation here, by the name Ringle. And it turns out that there was a whole story about the ending of the Wine Dark Sea. Mike, you and I had been talking about how slightly kind of disappointed we were in the way Patrick O'Brien suddenly found himself wrapping up the story of the Wine Dark Sea. And we found a great article, which we're going to share with you online, by the journalist Ken Ringle, who had become a great friend and correspondent of Patrick O'Brien's. And in touch with O'Brien at the time of the actual writing of the end of Wine Dark Sea, Ken Ringle had made some suggestions in writing to Patrick O'Brien about where he might go with this. And O'Brien was kind of so encouraged and uplifted by all the positive vibes he was getting from Ken Ringle that he asked Ken if Ken would mind if O'Brien would name this schooner after Mr. Ringle. So the reason why the schooner is called Ringle is because of Ken Ringle, the journalist, correspondent, and good friend of Patrick O'Brien. And Mike, that's a really nice honor for O'Brien to pay to a correspondent, especially given how touchy he could be with people who wrote to him in his life. He really could. And Ringle had even gone a little bit further. He had sent O'Brien a book about Baltimore schooners and the Clippers 
and and O'Brien didn't know about them. So not only this this help around the wine dark sea, but uh, this idea of oh my gosh, here's this whole ship, brand new ship. What a great idea! I'm going to use that, and it kind of was that was part of the catalyst that got him going with ah, how to end this, how to start the next one. And I I don't know. I think it really took. I don't know about you. Well, I'm, this is a spoiler alert for the first chapter, but I'm I'm excited. We seem to be back to uh, POB. It is you know top of his game again. I think so. I'm certainly hoping so. So, as it happens, they bumped by chance into Berenice at the end of the previous book. And now, Mike, they've been heading on up the Atlantic, right? Well, they have. They've sailed now about 6,000 plus miles together from right off Cape Horn there at South America. And O'Brien takes some time, he, you know, as he does so well, this marvelous exposition. For those of you who are perhaps picking up the book, it's been a while since you read The Wine Dark Sea, or perhaps for people who picked up this book without having read the other books, you know, Brian gives us a lot of detail about where we were, who everybody is, setting the scene here. And we learn in part of that exposition about their voyage home, about them shipping what he calls a remarkably efficient Parkingham substitute rudder made of spare top masts. They you know, hear that the cricket matches were played between the crews on Ascension Island where a proper rudder was shipped. And that, you know, this cricket match helped kind of ease some of the tensions between the two ships here. And that when they got to the doldrums, the crews were regularly visiting one another here. And uh-huh. and Ian, this Packingham substitute rudder, this is, you know, I think this is another familiar, <laughs> something a little bit familiar, right? Yes, indeed. It certainly it was familiar to Jack because we know that the, the Packingham rudder was a real thing. It was invented by a guy called Captain Edward Packingham or Packingham. I don't know which it is. Um, he died in 1798, so he was from kind of the era just before Jack Aubrey. The Packingham rudder was a rudder assembled from materials available on board uh, a ship, including planking and spare spars and so on. Packingham won a gold medal from the Royal Society of Arts in London in 1789 for his invention. And uh, he was also the developer of a method for restoring damaged masts uh, in a prompt and economical manner. And we know about Packingham from earlier on in the O'Brien timeline as well. Back in Destination Island, the uh, jury-rigged rudder that Jack improvised was inspired by Packingham. We saw his name in the text. And his ideas were also mentioned in the Ionian mission. And poor old Packingham had a hard time in the Far East. Uh, He was killed as captain of HMS Resistance in 1782 when his ship caught fire and blew up off of Sumatra. And sounds like an interesting character. Sounds like somebody that O'Brien would have liked. And Mike, I'm noticing as well, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I'm feeling good about this stage in the story here, is that in a number of different ways, we're getting Jack Aubrey reconnected to the Navy. He's reconnected to Berenice. Um, The crews are connected to each other and playing cricket and ship visiting. And he's picking up this idea of tools and techniques inspired by the old Royal Navy. So I'm, I've got a strong sense that Surprise, the independent vessel cruising around the Pacific, is getting behind us. And Jack Aubrey, the captain part of the naval establishment, is is getting back into, into close touch with us here. Yeah, and, and you really see this. I mean, at, at first, like we mentioned, there was a little bit of standoffishness between the two crews. And it was kind of yeah. like, you know, oh, here's a Royal Navy ship. Oh, here's that. Can it even be called a ship, the surprise, when the Berenice found her? 
But and the surprises are a little bit, you know, a, a little bit on their back foot about having been delivered by the Berenice. But they get in turn to provide them with what the text calls a full blown physician in Stephen Matron. Oh, yeah. And the Berenice are very sickly and very undermined because they had lost their surgeon and surgeon's mate much earlier in their voyage. And they had a lot of Sydney pox aboard. They had a lot of Cape Horn scurvy. And so they had Stephen Matron to help bring their crew back and, and make them right again. So uh, the text says that along the way, they pass through the frigid, temperate and torrid zones. And so to the merely wet and disagreeable climate of home waters. So to your point, Ian, we're back together with the Navy. We're now back in our home waters and even though the surprises couldn't like the ship, the Berenice, so much because she didn't handle very well, yeah. she sagged most disgracefully to leeward like a drunken crab, they said. And her slow sailing qualities had delayed their arrival home by a long, long time. And Jack was mm. you know, very much in old naval tradition, going to keep his station behind her here. They felt like they were kind of evened up. And as you say, with all that ship visiting, we're back in the Navy, you know, and back with that camaraderie and back ship to ship and back showing our bottoms to each other high up in the rigging. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says good fellow feeling with your fellow humans like bearing your backside at them from the rigging. I always find it's a great way to make connections with the neighbors. <laughs> Anyhow, it's not only the crews that are making connections. Jack and Henry Dundas have got a lot to catch up on, and they are in the cabin next, indulging in their favorite gambling pastime, which is backgammon. And as they're sitting there at the backgammon table, we get this wind blast against the tide, and the crew on deck are all getting soaked. Uh, we're aware that the Berenice is kind of slipping, as you say, Mike, further and further to leeward. Even before they had struck soundings, Henry had suggested that the surprise should head off. Uh, I think you mentioned this before, Mike, that you know, tradition for Jack Aubrey means staying with your cruising partner, but they had already been saying, no, no, you go ahead. And as they drink their port, they're talking about this little squadron that they have. And they, they turn to mention almost in passing, Mike, something that I had to read two or three times to read what they were talking about. Hennage says to Jack, well, you shall have her and you shall have her with all her gear and her ground tackle too. And Jack says, well, this is very handsome in you Henage thank you and I'm going like wait wait wait, wait hold on but what is it what is the her that Jack's gonna have and what kind of a her might possess ground tackle and I think I know I think I know but we're not going to find out for sure until a few paragraphs after so let's just set that there and read on Henage adds but I will say this Jack you have the most infernal luck you had no right even to save your gammon and Jack says that Hennage said the same thing years ago when they'd had their battle. And he shows Hennage this scar that he still carries with him. And it turns out that as youngsters under the gunner on the Bellerophon, Jack had won with this same quote unquote infernal luck. Uh, Hennage had claimed his revenge. Jack had won again on a double six, just like he had today. And they had exchanged harsh words that the text says included such things as cheat, liar, sodomite, booby, and goddamn lubber. And then they decided that as gentlemen, they certainly could not tolerate such language <laughs> to one another. So they agreed, you know, as these kids, these, you know, these young boys to fight a duel. When Jack gets sent ashore to gather this fine white sand to, you know, clean the ship deck floors, Hennage goes along with him, smuggling two newly sharpened cutlasses in a sailcloth. And as they put the hands to work gathering the sand, they kind of sneak behind this dune. 
and O'Brien writes half a dozen passes, the blades clashing. And when Jack cried out, oh, Hen, what have you done? Dundas gazed for a moment at the spurting blood, burst into tears, whipped off his shirt and bound up the wound as best he could. Oh, Uh, my gosh. Now, it's funny. This this seems like an almost unrelated little vignette story from the the boyhood history of these two men. But I think it's going to play an interesting role in how O'Brien is setting us up to look at these characters and look where they are. We're back in the present day then as they're drinking more port and Jack notices how silent and withdrawn Henry Dundas is. And he finally says, the time may be inappropriate, but since Jack had mentioned prizes and there's clearing weather and we're going to part company and then Henage is kind of hanging, hanging his head and doesn't really know how to go on. A pitiful attitude, says the text, for a, such a capable commander. Jack goes straight for route one here. says, oh, maybe you've got a girl aboard and you need to drop her off somewhere. No, 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 it's not that. Not this time, he says. <laughs> he gets properly into it. He says, when I land, I'll be arrested for debt, which is a situation that Jack Aubrey knows pretty well. I'll be thrown in prison. Could Jack lend Hennage a thousand guineas and Hennage is really ashamed to ask I bless him this is this is Jack in top of the line friend mode here also friend mode who's very much in funds replies instantly of course I could as I told you I am amazingly flush crocus is my second name but would a thousand be enough what was the debt it would be a pity to spoil the ship for a Mike he's about to commit an Aubreyism but Hennage uh, cuts him off, except for one tiny Aubreyism. Crocus is his middle name. I'm pretty sure he means Croesus, but never mind. We'll, right, we'll exactly. That <laughs> That's right. And I, and I love how they are the absolute best of friends, but being male and being British, it has taken them three or four rounds of conversation to get around to the real heart of it. Hennage says he can't ask his brother Melville, his elder brother, that is Lord Melville, first Lord of the Admiralty, saying he doesn't love me as much as he loves you which would have been an unusual thing to hear about Jack Aubrey a few books ago. He had thrown Hennage out of the office last time, calling him an infernal trundle thrift whoremonger and sent him off to New South Wales in the Baronies, a really unpromising voyage in a ropey old ship with no chance of prizes. So now, says Hennage, there's a judgment for £500 against him, the same young person, he says, and her infamous attorney. And he says, it's okay, 1,000 guineas or 1,000 pounds will cover it handsomely with interest and with the attorney's legal fees. Hennage describes Jack's supposed draft on his banker as being like Ajax's shield. Another, another little classical reference that the Norton cover of the Commodore, Mike, has the, the quote on the front of it there, a brilliantly imagined world that one scarcely wishes ever to leave. Patrick O'Brien is unquestionably the Homer of the Napoleonic Wars. So I think mentioning Achilles' shield is Absolutely spot on there. So, Hennage has been assuming all along that what Jack's going to give him is effectively a check, a banker's draft, right? But it's going to be even better than that. Yeah, Jack says, well, you know what? Nothing satisfies an attorney better than gold in the hand. And Hennage agrees, but he says, well, even if Jack had gold, it would take hours to count out a thousand guineas. And Jack tells Hennage that he, Tom, and Adams have been actually weighing and counting gold all day. They're preparing for the final sharing out in Shelmerston. He points at all these large bags stacked up to the left of the stern window, tells Hen they each hold a thousand gold guineas, and offers one to him, saying, I'd give you silver, but that would be too heavy to carry. 
pen blesses Jack's thanks him profusely, you know, lifts this bag up and says, this thing weighs a stone. So for those of us on this side of the pond, 14 pounds, it's a big bag. And they hear four bells ring out in the graveyard watch. So I I think that puts us at 2 a.m. And they pause because the sounds on deck are not the usual ones. You know, people are calling back and forth to each other a little more loudly and rapidly than usual. There's an interesting aside in, in, in this conversation where Jack's telling him about having counted out all the coins. He does mention that, you know, Stephen was with them for a good while, but he had to send them off because he kept interrupting there and they'd lose their count. But Stephen was collecting all the ancient pieces, including Jack talks about Stephen sort of counting and clasping an Irish piece called an inchquin to his breast. We'll put out a little social media piece about this one time when the Irish minted their own coins. And it's a brilliant piece of work, a brilliant, and and I'm sure, you know, I can just see O'Brien putting this as a little Easter egg about some of the genius of the Irish and how they were kind of weighing the sides in this political social situation, figuring out how best economically to deal with uh, a need to make payments, to have their own coins, and to figure out how to keep those coins in circulation locally. This is that, you know, one of the example coins that Matron has found in this chest and chest of gold here. <laughs> it's great. Minting their own coins. Who ever heard of such a thing? You'll be telling me next that they didn't recognize the divine right of the King of England. My God. Ah, uh, whatever next. <laughs> That's right. Good for the Irish, anyhow. I I really like the contrast here between the story of young Jack and young Dundas. They're kind of brave and they feel like they're immortal and they'll risk life and limb in a duel over a really tiny point of honor. And when you're young, that's how you go into the world. And now that they're adults, they've got responsibilities. And also, by the way, resources, really heavyweight resources and lots of good reasons not to take risk. And yet, and yet, and it's Dundas still fools around on shore with girls who are going to sue him. And yet, and yet, they both sit in the cabin playing backgammon, you know, winning and losing uh, a ship on the roll of a dice. So there's something in here about men being willing to take risk. I wonder if it's going to come up again. Let's see. Mm, Good question. Good question. We'd heard, you know, the bells, we'd heard all those strange sounds on deck. And sure enough, Reed comes running in with Mr. Wilkins' compliments There's a two-decker ship, perhaps a 74, about two miles away. And Wilkins, who's got the watch, doesn't like her response to the private signal. Hennage, the senior captain, thanks Jack again, calls for his barge, and tells Jack to clear and come within hail of the Berenice, saying that despite being shorthanded, he thinks that the two of them and their ships can take any 74 afloat. Wow. Mike, again, all of a sudden, we've got clear for action and ship in the fog. And I'm thinking, oh, we're back to the end of Wine Dark Sea again. And what's going to go on here? And off we go, just like again, like the beginning of the movie. They go on deck. And on deck, Jack looks across at the ship. He sees the three hanging lanterns in response to the private signal. There should have been four. And since this private signal isn't quite right, they beat to quarters. There's the roar of the drum. There's all the good Patrick O'Brien tropes of clearing for action, the thunder of 400 feet, the screech of gun trucks, and all of this noise wakes up Stephen. Uh, Stephen, who had been drinking more than usual before leaving Jack and Hennage, and the wine that he'd taken on board him left him less able to concentrate. So, And I love this little Easter egg here. He'd been reading his book uh, by, by an author called Cruzat, 
uh, the examen de pironisme, an examination of skepticism, which called for a great deal of concentration. <laughs> uh, and he returns then to thinking about Diana and thinking about their daughter, Bridget, neither of whom he's seen yet. I might the, the Easter egg is lovely here, this examen de pironisme. It's a Swiss mathematician and philosopher. The guy, it turns out, who introduced Descartes to Lausanne, wrote his book on the original Pyrrho's idea of Pyrrhonism, or skepticism, as we'd say. And skepticism is absolutely Stephen Maturin's meat and drink. Ancient and modern skepticism, questioning, examination, philosophical reflection. Um, this kind of work really influenced the, the Reformation. It influenced the development of modern philosophy. And maybe, as the book would say, suspending judgment in the face of incomplete knowledge is something that Stephen is now finding harder to do as he heads for home. And I also wonder, Mike, whether this might become an issue for Jack. I, I think this is really great stuff. You did a great job digging this out. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and like you say, just this tiny little Easter egg, typical Patrick O'Brien here. We get into this incredible examination uh, in Stephen's thinking now. So we've got the beating to quarter that's woken him up, but now we're going to pause for a second and say, what's going on with Stephen? And O'Brien writes, this reverie was very usual with him, meaning with Stephen, and it required no sort of concentration at all, but rather the reverse, being a series of images, sometimes imprecise, sometimes intensely vivid, of conversations, real or imaginary, of an indefinite sense of present happiness. Yet tonight, for the very first time in all this very long parting, no less than a complete circumnavigation of the world by sea, with a great deal happening on land as well, there was a subtle difference, a change of key. So Stephen's kind of reverie as usual, you know, in touch with happiness and thinking about all this is now off a little bit. At any moment now, he had learned they might strike soundings, an expression that in itself had a chilling quality quite apart from its meaning. And the fact itself brought what had been a vague futurity into the almost immediate presence. Now it was not so much a question of wondering in past felicity as of reflecting upon the reality he would meet in a few days' time or even less if the wind came fair. And, and this is this is one of those I'm getting like goosebumps, you know, just revisiting this. You know, Stephen, here it is. This is life about to hit you in the face. All those, you know, you reminisced happily. But you've also yeah. had a little bit of concerns and worries. You know, we've been over this for a while now with Stephen and back to Cocalese. And man, here it is. And O'Brien, oh my gosh, this is this is this is what we love about these books. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I have a feeling it's not only Stephen who's headed for some interesting new contact with the real world. Stephen, anyway, had been looking forward to seeing Diana now for thousands of miles, and his eagerness he finds is now mixed with an apprehension that he can't put a name to. He's been out of touch for almost the whole voyage. He knows that his daughter Bridget has been born and that Diana had bought this place, Barham Down, a large remote place where she could breed her Arabian horses. But there's very little else that he knows for sure. And this being Stephen and this being Patrick O'Brien, we get into a little uh, a Latin quotation here. The text says, Years had passed and years had a bad name. A verse of Horace floated into his mind. Singula de nobis ani predanturiuntes, eripuere jocos, venerem, convivia, ludum. And for a moment he tried to make a tolerable English version. But 
the years in passing rob us of our delight, of merriment and carnal love, of each in turn, all sport and dining out, did not please him. And he abandoned the attempt. Now, Stephen's only got his memory and his own recollection of Latin. Mike, we, we've got more resources to bring to bear on this, haven't we? We do. Thank goodness, too. We, we've got hmssurprise.org, you know, the wiki there, yeah. which suggests that this Latin could be translated as the years slipping by us one at a time are robbers snatching away jokes, Venus, and, and by that they mean sexual love, good company, fun. Now, Matt Kaufman, one of our listeners, had had uh, just told us recently that he had been on one of the websites that allows you to set up AI chat box. And he had created a Jack Aubrey and a Stephen Matron and a Preserve Killick chat box. And it was interesting because I'd been searching for these thinking, I would love to have some conversations with these guys. And, and just boom, like within the week, Matt had happened to, you know, jump into Facebook Messenger and let us know about these ones that he had set up. So I asked Stephen Matron himself about this. And what <laughs> we got was the following response. The years go by, the years come back, and one by one steal joy, company, playthings, sports, Venus. And the chat box went on to explain, or Stephen Matron in chat box form, it captures the passage of time very effectively, but how we cannot take for granted the things so important to us today. We lose them bit by bit. Even with great foresight, it's difficult to appreciate just how different our surroundings will be in five or ten years. To quote another author, the chat box finishes, how strange it is to be anything at all. And to all of that, I would quote a dear friend of ours, what a fascinating modern world we live in. So not taking any chatbot things at absolute face value, you know, I turn to our consulting medieval Latinist, Karen Ruff, who was kind enough to provide a literal translation. Again, you know, we're starting to get a theme here. The years as they go by rob us of everything. They snatch away jests, love, parties, and play. Um, and she notes that the Matron chat box translation is very close to a Collington translation. Mm. The years as they roll cut all our pleasures short, our pleasant mirth, our loves, our wine, our sport. And then they stretch their power and crush at last even the power of singing of the past. And, you know, that's so poetic in addition to how powerful this is. And it, it, this is a translation that's including in, in Anthony Trollope's autobiography, a book that I think Patrick O'Brien may well have read and certainly would have oh. appreciated. You know, we'll have to put that link out on social media. And Trollope provides his own translation, but I didn't think it was as good as, as Collins, uh, Collington's here. Now, Karen says that the rest of Horace's work that this is pulled from don't really provide any relevant context for the story here. So the verse is probably exactly as Stephen portrays this off-quoted aphorism, you know, Johnson, Montagnier, others have said it, you know, that basically years have a bad name or, you know, we just don't know how they're going to impact us. So thank you, Karen. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Chatbox Stephen Matron. And we'll yeah. get a little bit more information on social media about that. Fantastic. So, Despite the the note of pessimism that we're getting from this um, Latin poetry reference, Stephen thinks that things aren't too desperate yet. Venus, he says, might be a somewhat remote and flickering planet, 
but he can still enjoy the cheerful dinners that he have with his friends. He can enjoy close fought games of cards. So there are still sports and dining in Stephen's life, even if some of the Venus stuff is a bit remote. Yet, says the text, changed he had. To some degree of that, there was no doubt. More and more, for example, it seemed to him that the proper study of mankind was man rather than beetle or even bird. And Mike, this is this, this Stephen going all the way back to Master and Commander and O'Brien's floating behavioral analysis lab, right? Right, right. For Stephen to be thinking about, I need to be studying mankind, not just not just my birds and, and beetles. That's That says something. Yeah. And we got this nice note from Karen as she was giving us the advice about the Latin translations. She said, I'm increasingly convinced that this series is a 20 book meditation on aging. And Karen, I think you're very close to the mark there. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, just in in the end of the Wine Dark Sea, we had that time when O'Brien's describing Aubrey saying that he's no longer a young man. And then, you know, and he was still older by morning. So this, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I think Karen is just absolutely on the mark here. Yeah. So Stephen's becoming aware of this. He's aware that this change is inevitable. It's happening with the passage of time. And of course, he has changed and he gets to wondering, how has Diana changed? How has our love for him changed, if at all? The text gives us a little bit of a catch-up here for those of us who might be new to this or need a memory jogger, but Diana married Stephen Matron more out of friendship or perhaps even pity than out of outright love. She knows that he, for his part, had loved her so much and for so long. The text reminds us that he's not very prepossessing to look at. He's never been a great lover, especially when addicted to opium. Uh, and he gets to thinking deeply more and more about this. The text says... As the night wore on, he worried himself foolishly, as one will in the dark, with vitality low and courage, reasoning power and common sense all at their lowest ebb. Mm. And he's hoping that maybe somehow his daughter Bridget's going to be a bond between him and Diana. At other times, he remembers reminding himself that the idea, the image of Diana as a mother seemed to him absurd. And he's really longing now for the tincture of laudanum, for his old friend Opium to ease the torment in his mind. He thinks that maybe he could use a substitute, which is available at the minute, which is cocoa, but that banishes sleep. And he's really, really longing for sleep. Yeah. And, and you know, we've, so we've had this thing, this has been this whole thing about Stephen having a little bit too much wine, getting so caught up in his thoughts. He just can't go to sleep. He really wants to go to sleep. But right before that, we'd had these noises on deck. And now, after kind of this step into Stephen's mind, O'Brien brings us back, telling us, well, Stephen must have slept because the drums beating and the pounding feet wake him. And he, he is a bit of a nautical creature. He jumps up, you know, runs to his action station, greets Padine, asks about their current patients, these two invalids, Williams and Ellis. And these guys had been sparring together with loggerheads, these long rods with the iron balls on the end, which are heated and used to melt pitch. And Padin reports that the two are now, you know, Padin's been up with them all night, sober and penitent. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Boy, doesn't that take me back to some mornings? And uh, <laughs> sober and penitent. Fabian, Emily, and Sarah have now all joined them. And together, the five of them are kind of laying out all the tools, all the materials that might be used in action. You know, this beating to action here. Well, Mike, this is a moment of high expectation now. We've got 
all of the surgical instruments laid out. We've got ships on the horizon. We've got the surprise beating to quarters. This is probably a good moment to here to make sure that the crew is well fed before we call to action. Let's take a short break and we'll come back and see what's going to go on with the action here. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed the break. We hope that you're cleared for action and that your slow match is smoldering in the tubs. Before we get back into the story, let's just spend a couple of minutes sharing where we're headed next in the in the show. We hope that in the last episode, you enjoyed the conversation that we had with Paul Briars. Lots of great insights from Paul about his writing process and his love of history and his love of Patrick O'Brien. We're going to do something that we've never done before. We're going to take Paul slash Seth's latest book, Trafalgar Fog of War, and we're going to give it a review, share with you what our thoughts are, and share with you whether this might be a good starting point for you to follow another journey outside of Patrick O'Brien. Coming up in episodes not long after that, we're hoping to bring you some other great conversations from the world of nautical fiction publishing, because there's a lot out there. There's a world beyond Patrick O'Brien, and now might be a great moment for us all to hear a bit about it. Anyhow, Mike, that's all in the future for the podcast. We were just before the break on tenterhooks, maybe in a in a Patrick O'Brien kind of a way, on very low-key tenterhooks thinking, what's going to happen with the action? Are we going to see injury and blood and death and destruction? Emily and Sarah, they haven't got the patience for this. As, as time goes by and no action seems to have come along, they start action of their own. They're playing rock, paper, scissors. And Stephen carries on the conversation with Williams and Ellis, these two guys who've been swiping at each other with these big iron mallets, these loggerheads as they're called. And they're explaining to Stephen that this really brutal set to was actually a game. They've been having a swipe at each other and they explained that on some ships it's played as a sport, you know, a little bit like sparring or wrestling. He tells the story of his father being at, as he calls it, at right loggerheads with somebody else in a serious fight. The other person being a seaman who had called him a nymph, which I'm pretty sure was meant not charitably. And this particular fight with loggerheads had resulted in a leg break so bad that the guy had lost his leg and had subsequently obtained a cook's warrant. So, as the story goes, good things can come from bad, although this particular guy with the cook's warrant later drowned at sea, so hey. But it's certainly a nice explanation of the old phrase, at loggerheads with someone. A loggerhead is one of these iron masses used to heat pitch, and they were used for fighting, and sometimes the outcome was the bad one. Now, I also like to connect this, Mike, in my mind here, the description of these two young seamen fighting with the description earlier on of Jack and Henry Dundas fighting. It seems like, you know, th- there is there are some connections here and also some some ways in which we're pointing out the difference between the values and behavior of people at sea versus the values and behavior and the perspective mm. of people back home. And and maybe, you know, in, in some ways for men at sea, life is a little bit cheap. As all this is taking place, as everybody's waiting for action, Reed comes in and tells Stephen with the captain's compliments that there will be no action. Uh, The ship, as it turns out, was the Thunderer of 74. And that when she finally turned to look at the surprise in the Berenice, you know, some of the more brilliant officers aboard, those who could count above three, (laughs) says Reed, realized that she was flying the wrong signal and corrected it. 
Well, Stephen's pretty upset by this. Ask if they're going to be flogged around the fleet. And Reed says, well, no, with the thunder of being senior to the Berenice and the surprise, they'll just sort of carry on. They've sent messages saying they regret any inconvenience. Don't I hate that line. <laughs> we regret <laughs> inconvenience. We've just totally disrupted your life. We regret any inconvenience. But they've invited Captains Dundas, Aubrey, and Dr. Matron to please come aboard and have breakfast. And I, and I think, uh, as we find out here, the captain of the Thunderer, this gentleman fellows, is is a little bit concerned and hoping to make this breakfast something special. <laughs> as as well he might. <laughs> so, Captain Fellows is he's a rather curious individual. I think he's painted right from the beginning, Mike, as somebody that we're not going to encounter for very long or come back to. He seems to be an example of a certain kind of captain that appears in the O'Brien stories from time to time. The name Fellows certainly is, echoes back to earlier in the canon. There was a Fellows who was the flag captain for Admiral Hart on the Thunderer back in the Ionian mission. And it's the Thunderer again that we're encountering. So it sounds like there's a connection. The text here says that he was in danger of making rear admiral in the next round of post-captain promotion. So that kind of rings true with the timeline. And in the real world, there was a Richard Edwards Fellows, without the final E, who became a rear admiral in 1814. So again, that kind of rings true. At the time of this particular book, the real world Captain Fellows was in charge of HMS Conqueror in the Mediterranean. So this all seems like it would fit. This Captain Fellows is a man so high on the post-captain's list that he is, as per his namesake, either going to become a rear admiral of the blue or, as the text says, that unspeakable misfortune, yellowed, attached mm-hmm. to no particular squadron. And the Thunderer's signal captain, who by now has been confined to quarters for the screw-up with the signal lanterns earlier on, has ignited rage and indignation in the person of Henage Dundas, who himself is the son of the former First Lord and the brother of the present one, and also a rage in the person of Jack Aubrey, a Tory member of Parliament. Ill will from either of these two captains, even though they are junior to fellows, could have a horrible yellowing effect for this person in hope of promotion to Admiral Rank. And not only that, but Dr. Maturin, much caressed by the Royal Society, had been inconvenienced. So they're reflecting with some anxiety about the impression that might be made amongst these three notable individuals who are coming across to eat aboard the Thunderer. Yeah. So how is he going to fare this fellows? How's he going to, how's he going to keep things on an even keel? Well, it's fascinating. You know, fellows welcomes these guests with cordialities, with apologies, with explanations, with what he hopes is this luxurious meal that the text says included everything except the coffee that Jack and Stephen's souls long for. So Mr. Phillips, the admiralty officer that was traveling aboard the Thunderer, tells Stephen that he has the most recent proceedings of the Royal Society in his cabin and would love to show it to him after breakfast. Hmm. And I think he's he's seated there close by uh, Stephen. Stephen, who the text says actually knows Phillips quite well, says in a low confidential tone, he asks him if there could be a drop of coffee at all. And Phillips asks the steward, who replies that, no, no, this is a cocoa ship, but they do countenance tea, you know, a little bit of tea. And and I can can almost imagine Stephen's perking up, oh, you have cocoa? Sorry, not that kind of cocoa, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) 
then we get the fuller picture because in the midst of this breakfast table, the Sunderer surgeon calls out in an authoritative voice that coffee relaxes the fibers and therefore he's always recommended cocoa. Well, Captain Fellows realizes he's got a little bit of a faux pas on his hands and tells the steward to run along and see if perhaps the wardroom or the gun room has any coffee. And the surgeon, again, loudly repeats his comment about the fibers where, <laughs> you know, Hedinger Dundas jumps in and says, well, perhaps the doctor might like to have his fibers relaxed, adding that, you know, for his part, having stood two all night in parentheses because of your idiotic signals, he certainly would like to have his fibers relaxed. So, you know, Dundas is making it pretty clear that they're still not real happy here. And so now Captain Fellows sends his first lieutenant after the steward to have him hurry along that coffee there. You know, we can we can almost hear Killick in the back, you know, light along with that coffee there, Killick. But as it turns out, there's no coffee to be found anywhere on this ship. And so finally, Stephen settles for a small beer and heads off to Philip's cabin to talk with him. And, and you know, like you said, we've, we've discovered these cocoa ships before, right? Yeah, we have. It seems like it's a signifier for the the ship and the captain in particular for being this kind of bland, worthy kind of milk and water sort of feeling about them. If you remember way back in post, Captain, Captain Hammond of the Lively, where Jack was a jobbing captain for a while, that ship under Hammond's command was clearly under the influence of Coco. And we got the impression of the wardroom being a particularly kind of po-faced, wiggish kind of establishment. Uh, we got it mentioned as well in the Fortune of War, an Ionian mission. Somebody was referred to as being one of your blue light psalm singing tract and cocoa captains. So I, I don't think we're meant. It, it would only have been worse, I guess, uh, if he also played the German flute. But I think <laughs> small beer and cocoa is enough. Stephen's gone over to meet privately with this guy Phillips, the official from the Admiralty. Stephen asks about Sir Joseph, as he can now that they are privately, confidentially together. And Phillips reports that Sir Joseph is physically well, that he's stouter than Stephen might remember, but worried. And he hands over to Stephen a letter explaining the situation. And he uses this word to describe how we are in the intelligence world, um, cloisonné, which means partitioned off. And we took a quick look in Anthony Gary Brown's excellent website, A Guide for the Perplexed, which translates all of the, uh, the the foreign talk in the books. It says, cloisonné is a book, cloisonné is a word that means partitioned off. And actually, when Stephen says bulkheaded, for once, he's not mistaken. I think bulkheaded, meaning walled off, is a pretty good naval description for what they mean. Anyhow, now that we've established that they are in their little private conversation here, Phillips says that We've made progress in Spain. There have been diplomatic reverses, however, everywhere else. The enemy, meaning Bonaparte and France and their allies, keeps finding new resources, new allies, men, money, ships, naval stores, whereas Britain is stretched to its utmost. So Bonaparte, therefore, at the minute, I mean, we're right at the end of the period of Bonaparte's kind of hegemony in Europe here. But even as late as this, even after 1812, Bonaparte seems indestructible. One more blow from Bonaparte and the British may have to ask for conditions. So this this generates a new sense of urgency, I think. This is a reminder for us that the war in Europe is still going on and it's still not a guaranteed outcome. There's still work to do to overcome Bonaparte and the empire. Stephen, having learned all of this, is called back to return over to the surprise. 
you know, we get kind of a classic Stephen re-entry scene. And, you know, the text says, yeah. Stephen, or dry, but there are some folks that go on before him and are kind of waiting at that bottom step, hogging the ropes until the ship rolls and the sea rises and Stephen gets soaked all the way from his feet up above his waist here. You know, and to add insult to injury, he gets back to the cabin and Killick harangues him about his wet best breeches, then, then asks where his wig is. And it turns out Stephen had wrapped his watch in his wig and handkerchief and stuffed it in his bosom. So, you know, Killick's all over that. And Jack comes in and starts to say, oh, you know, oh, Stephen, you're soaked. But he realizes, you know, he, he can't say that. So he says, you know, oh, Stephen, w- w- wasn't that a miserable breakfast? And, and no mail, no mail. <laughs> That's not a great bundle of mail. And, you know, they chat a little bit about the mail situation. And Stephen asks why Jack seems so happy, even though there's no mail. And Jack tells Stephen confidentially in a voice he thinks Killick won't hear, but of course Killick always <laughs> does, that, you know, Hennage had had a letter from his brother Melville, the first Lord. In this letter, uh, Melville mentions how magnanimous Jack is. And, you know, Jack keeps saying, and he used that word, magnanimous, right? And that he'd been so magnanimous in taking this irregular mission on, despite having been so shabbily used. And Jack goes on to tell him how he had expressed his sense of Jack's merits. And to reward him, he intends to offer Jack a squadron to cruise off the West African coast and intercept slavers. And I, and I think Jack realizes he's praising mm. himself a lot, but he, you know, pauses. And, and, and you'd like that, right, Stephen? You know, that you'd like that. And, and Jack goes on to what clearly is the shiny object for him. Perhaps three frigates, a couple of 74s. You know, he concludes to saying, you know, he'd be a real first class Commodore, not wow. like that hard labor Mauritius campaign. And Jack's so happy about all this. He's so happy, too, that he can finally take care of Tom, that this might be Tom's only chance to be made post would be to be a captain, you know, as part of the squadron. Yeah, and this has been on his agenda since the Ionian mission, if not before. Right. So Tom Pulling's blessing has, has had all kinds of patience. Meanwhile, Jack says, you know, it, it's okay. There's, there's, there's no mad hurry. We're going to be home for a month or more. We've got plenty of time to get back acquainted with folks at home and go and enjoy life on the land before we get on with this slavery mission. By the time they've spent some time ashore, he says, Sophie and Diana will be sick of them. And th- this is the first of a few moments in the chapter, Mike, where we're, Jack and Stephen are looking ahead to female company ashore, and I'm really not sure how this is going to work out for them. Let's see what happens in these few mm-hmm. chapters here. Jack, meanwhile, wants to wipe out some of the memory of this terribly unsuccessful meal. Sit down with me, he says, and have a pot of coffee. So as they are drinking coffee, Stephen gives Jack joy of his splendid command, but says he'll have to skip Shelmerston and stay with the Berenice pulling into Plymouth so that he, Stephen, can get to Plymouth as quickly as possible. He doesn't want to go ashore, he says, kiss a cheek or two and then bid farewell. He thinks the best if I go and take care of my business in London first, and then I can go and be with Diana and pay her attention. Jack calls for coffee, of course. Killick, having already made it, of course, in anticipation, demonstrates one of his only two virtues, the one being excellent coffee-making skills, the other being polishing of silver. And O'Brien tells us that for those who like their plate brilliant and their coffee prompt, freshly roasted, freshly ground and piping hot, it was worth putting up with his countless vices. And there's a little catch-up on the character of preserved Killick in a single sentence. And... I, I might add that if you have a little chat with the uh, Preserve Killick AI that we mentioned earlier with Matt Kaufman that we're going to put out on the socials, 
you get that same flavor. <laughs> it's great fun. You do. <laughs> so having dealt with Killick, Jack says, Stephen, if you really must fly as quickly as you can, then you should go on the Ringle. And right now we're getting back to recalling the fact that we've got this new character. We've got this Baltimore Clipper, this schooner sailing in company. And we get to call back to the outcome of the backgammon game right at the opening of the chapter. Jack says she can take Stephen to Plymouth twice as fast as the old Knacker's Yard of a Berenice. And he casually drops into Stephen that he had won the ringle off of Henage Dundas with a pair of sixes just as he was at the point of being gammon. And this was the great turn of gambling fortune that Jack had been crowing about really at the beginning of the chapter. He says, it's no problem. I'll have Tom Pullings and Reed and Bondon along with you in the Ringle to run you up the channel. We'll send you as well with a few of the hands who don't belong to Shelmerston and you're going to get there super fast. So this this sounds like a great opportunity. And, and it, I love how the real outcome of the backgammon and the uh, and the acquisition of the Ringle is just dropped in for us in passing secondhand here. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really something there. Well, Stephen protests a little bit, but then he realizes, you know, that the Navy is always expeditious and generous. And so he thanks Jack, heads back to his room and reads Blaine's message alone in his cabin again. And he's puzzled because it is just so curt. You know, it just tells Stephen that he has to come to London without the loss of a moment. Nothing else, nothing else about the situation. And turning the half sheet over, he sees the penciled letter pi meaning many. And then he realizes that here, ah, Blaine is signifying that he's talking about the committee, that, you know, the leading men in the intelligence service and in the foreign office, that that same committee that had sent Stephen on the mission to Peru and Chile. And he thinks to himself, well, they must want to know what he's accomplished and are probably having a little difficulty representing the whole matter favorably or even tolerably uh, to their Spanish allies. So the Spanish probably now have wind of all this. They're having to try to explain what happens. They don't know what's happened because they haven't talked to Stephen yet. So Stephen starts thinking, through, oh my gosh, what all am I going to tell them? Let me sort of get this ordered in my mind when Tom comes along and says that the Berenice has struck soundings and that the Ringle will be alongside in a moment. Tom's in a big hurry, calls to kill it, says, you know, get the doctor's sea chest in order. We got to go now. Tom leaves, Jack walks in, tells Stephen exactly the same news about the Berenice and Soundings <laughs> and then the Ringle, orders Killick to get the doctor's sea chest. And Killick you know, responds, as only Killick can, which I done it, ain't I? Killick's voice quivered with indignation. And then Killick goes off to recount exactly how the chest is packed. You know, here's everything I've done. Here's how I've got you completely ready, Stephen, for London. And he heads off. For his mate, Bill, because Killick, you know, he handles the big stuff. He's not going to muscle this chest up there. Bill can take care of that. He's done the packing. (laughs) So it's a funny little domestic comedy scene here with them all kind of talking over each other. It's a moment of worry, though, for Stephen, because he's got to hand over his collections or rather leave them in the hands of Jack aboard the Surprise. There's no room for all of his botanical specimens and all his naturalizing aboard the Ringle. So he hands them over to Jack entrust them to Jack saying he would be very sorry to see his Titicaca grebe come into a state of decay. And he asks Jack another topic. He says, would Jemmy Ducks happen to have a wife who could look after the sweeting girls after Sarah and Emily until I get back and finishes off by saying, Jack, 
You will salute Diana most affectionately for me, I beg, and assure her that if I had my will... Come, sir, if you please, said Tom Pullings. Schooners alongside, and we're fending off something cruel in this ugly cross sea. And it was horrible that Stephen was just about to get to pass on this message to Diana, but he's interrupted, like he so often is, by the imperatives of the service. He's really torn, I think, between his desire to get back and see his wife and find out about his daughter versus, on the other hand, his really urgent desire to do whatever is most harmful to Napoleon. There's, there's a little moment here where O'Brien might be guilty of a little continuity error. What do you think as the, as the doctor is preparing to go over to the Ringle? Yeah, I wondered exactly the same thing, Ian, because, you know, uh, as as Stephen is stepping aboard the Ringle, O'Brien saying that he had not been aboard the Ringle yet, even though they were all sailing in company, because he preferred using his own little green-painted skiff while the ships had been becalmed on their journey. But we recall in the Wine Dark Sea that before they went on their journey, before they became becalmed, his green-painted skiff was utterly destroyed in that crazy wind and, mm. <laughs> and waves, you know, up up in the... Uh, or in, in, in the Antarctic Ocean there. So maybe it was destroyed and they put it back together with supplies from the Berenice. Maybe, as you say, just a little continuity error. You know, we were talking with Paul Myers, uh, a.k.a. Seth Hutter, about how, you know, you really have to kind of keep all this stuff as you get this series and it goes on and on, keep all these details there. I think I remember reading one point that the editors had multiple assistants for J.K. Rowling to keep up with exactly all the backstory in in Harry Potter and everything. Everybody was checking this over and over again. Fascinating. Yeah, I remember that. Wow. Well, so with one skiff or another, a a new skiff or the same skiff, Stephen is off on his way across this choppy sea here to the Ringle. He gets aboard the Ringle, and he's not really used to this kind of brisker, more lively motion that he encounters aboard the Ringle. He very carefully makes his way backwards towards the stern to get out of everyone's way. He turns around taking out his handkerchief to wave goodbye, but finds out that the Berenice is already far, far away. They're racing past. Henish Dundas waves and calls out, but Stephen can't hear him and raises a hand to salute. While all this is going on, Stephen's clearly in a precarious position, not really properly in touch. So Bonden catches hold of him, one of Bonden's hands still on the tiller of the ringle and one-handed hands Stephen off to Joe Place, who fastens Stephen to an eye bolt on the transom. So lashed to some strong point here, Stephen is back where he belongs, which is where somebody with a seaman-like background can keep an eye on him. Looking backwards now, Stephen sees that both ships, the Surprise and the Berenice, are a great way off. Everyone is individually unrecognisable except for the red-waistcoated figure of Awkward Davis. And... We're getting a big contrast here with the slow pace of the Berenice. The Ringle is tearing along. She's sailing really close to the wind, even closer than the surprise ever could. And as Stephen watches these two other ships sinking away behind them, he thinks the surprise had been his home for longer than he could easily recall. There had been intervals ashore and intervals in other ships, but he had probably lived in her longer than in any other dwelling he had known, his having been a wandering, unfixed life. I'm like, this is a really nice moment of getting up close and personal with Stephen's reflections about himself and where he's been and where he's going to. Yeah, and 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 I couldn't help but contrast this to he wants Diana and now Bridget to be an anchor in his life. But I, I think yeah. there's a part of him yeah. looking at the surprise going, yeah, that's really been it. <laughs> that's been it more so. So yeah, like you say, I'm, I'm a little worried about what's going to happen going forward here. 
but by the way, I think this is also O'Brien back at the top of his game, right? The writing here oh. is really getting us to the heart of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm loving it. I am so loving it that we're back. Ah. Well, Stephen's been flying along at this great pace, but back with the Berenice and the surprise. It's three days before the wind changes, such that, you know, the Berenice can go up the channel. So Surprise has been very polite, waiting right there with her. That's why Jack sent Stephen ahead. And they finally get up the channel. They part company at Shelmerson. You know, Jack and the Surprise heading in, the Berenice continuing on. The Surprise is freshly painted. Everybody's standing on deck in their best shore-going rig. Obviously, great anticipation of this homecoming. And they had spent the entire morning finalizing the sharing out of all of this treasure and gold and everything that they've collected here. And each man is bringing home more than 364 pounds. Even the little girls had half a share split between them here. So, you know, Mm. unbelievable here. They get right up to the entrance of the harbor. They have to wait for a bit for the tide to kind of raise up so they can go over the bar. And everybody's spending this waiting time kind of looking at the town to see what's changed in their absence, including all these different, the church members, the different sectarians kind of looking at their places of worship and what's the same and what's different. And there starts to be with this kind of waiting around a little bit of trouble, you know, as people are saying things about each other's places of worship. But luckily, an old hand quells them by calling uh, attention to a nostalgic place that they can all agree on. Well, look at that. That place is still just as crappy as it used to be. That place that, you know, no crane never helps us out there. Yeah, we're all still family together. It's funny, isn't it? We, We almost had a return to the old divisions and the sectarianism in the surprise, but somebody managed to bring them back to being a family again. And again, this chapter seems to be all about families restored. Now, this sense of exaltation, of happiness and homecoming was turning into a bit of uneasiness as they realized that no one was going in and out of the pub all of the inshore fishing boats were drawn up there was no one down on the beach looking out to sea there was no one looking at the surprise even with this great silver gilt candlestick at the top mast taken from the south sea pirate somebody who's rather insensitive and thick-witted mentions out loud that it reminds him of sweeting island where they had found emily and sarah and everybody else dead and everyone turns on him and says, what are you, crazy? Don't be mentioning that. But I, th- I think still everybody's got the same thought, albeit unspoken, that is something going on, is something wrong in Shelmerston. Right. As they come over the bar into the harbour, the rain starts. And Mike, you and I have said this a lot of times, and any time rain falls in fiction, <laughs> we know it's for a reason. So it sets the atmosphere for us here. The rain is coming down. They see in a small boat an old man and a small boy shoving off from the shore. As the boat approaches, we get this. What ship is that? He hailed in a high, shrill, creaking old voice, one hand to his ear. Surprise, replied Jack in the silence. Where do you hail from? Shelmerston, last from Fayal. Okay, which is in the Azores. Surprise, that's right, says the old man. Surprise. And he asks if John Summers is aboard. And John Summers had been a surprise, but had drowned off Cape Horn. John's younger brother, William, is aboard, though, and he calls out to his grandfather and in turn learns that his own mum has been dead for over a year. So we're all learning of how life has moved on and people have passed away. They learn then that the young boy in the boat is the nephew of a crew member and the boy tells them now that the entire town is off, off to see a big hanging. So again, 
life and death are happening in the in the uh, in the, in the never-ending cycle here in Shemelston, and we've just got to get back in sync with it. The boy, it turns out, had drawn short straws and had been left behind to look after his cousin, this old man. And Mike, it's it's, it's clear here that as, as we get back in touch with our shore-based family, things have changed, but things are continuing to change. And now this is the environment that the surprise is finding its way into. Yeah, they, the crew, you know, everybody, you know, they, they anchor the ship, the crew goes ashore, they take all the boats in. And, and Jack takes the two Sweden girls, you know, pounds on the crown's door until an old caretaker opens it up. So there's nobody there either. And it says that by sunset, the rain had stopped and the townspeople and the whores returned from the, you know, the big hanging that had been across the county there. And despite news of more deaths and unlooked for births and desertions, you know, the town becomes more and more cheerful with fiddling at all the alehouses, visiting from cottage to cottage, as you know, everybody is reunited again here. It's great. And there was a moment of worry there about, you know, why is the town deserted? But it's great that we quickly get that resolved. Now, that's okay for everybody who's a Shelmastonian. But Jack is not a Shelmastonian. He's got another agenda altogether. He needs to get back with his family. He leaves the Sweeting Girls then with Mrs. Jemmy Ducks and takes a chase and four, traveling as fast as it can to Ashgrove Cottage, which is a place, Mike, that we haven't been in the story for I don't know how many books. And along with Jack, I think we're at a high sense of expectation. What's he going to find? Isn't it going to be great to be back with the family? The sea chest is lashed behind him. He also has his most recent gift for Sophie, a suit of the finest Madeira lace on his knee so it won't get crushed. He's sitting up very stiffly to stop him crushing it any more than he already has. He continues falling off to sleep. He's wondering if anyone will still be awake when he arrives home. And Mike, this idea of Jack bearing dress fabric as a gift to please Sophie is an important little moment here. We should stick a pin in this. I think mm. we're going to come back to the idea of dress fabric as a gift. They finally get to Ashgrove. Jack wakes up again. There's not a light on at all in the house, but there are big lights blazing out in the stable yard, and the chase pulls into the stables. The double coach house that Jack had built, you know, back in his days of, you know, having a, a big bunch of horses that he subsequently sold off, it's all lit up. There's lots of laughter, animated conversation coming from it, which has blocked out the arrival of the chase, so they don't hear him coming. Jack settles up with the postboys, walks inside, and then he hears, oh, it's the captain. And everyone gets quiet, except for this woman continuing her story on the back, saying, you know, you silly bugger. Ain't you ever seen a girl? And that also gets drowned out by a song that's being sung further into the background. Whenever I roam, I long and I long and I long for my home. So this whole idea that lights are all out in the house, we've got some kind of party going on here, a song about longing for home. I mean, O'Brien's really setting the scene for us here. Yeah, absolutely. And longing for home is absolutely what Jack is, but he's not getting it. Uh, the groom Hawker comes up and explains that it's the 79th birthday of Abel Crawley, who himself is a former crew member in the Arethusa. We've had a few mentions, I think, in the canon in the past of the Arethusa. Nothing very memorable. She was an actual 38-gun frigate. Hawker asks forgiveness for the liberty of this celebration in honor of Abel Crawley. He had said that with all the ladies being away, the captain wouldn't mind. So now we learn that the ladies are not here. All the men present as we look around are all former shipmates of Jack Aubrey from some time or other. 
And interestingly, Mike, we've got sailors celebrating ashore and the women celebrating with them are prostitutes in both cases. <sighs> and we are having this mentioned at the same time that Jack and Stephen are on their way to see Diana and Sophie. And Stephen's been quoting Latin poetry about the declining desire for sexual love. Ah, where might we be headed with this? Mm. Oh, no. Well, Jack learns that Mrs. Aubrey is at Woolcombe. And we remember that as the, the, the house where Jack grew up as a kid, right? And Hawker tells him that she's there with all the servants except Ellen Pratt, only sir, left here, that Mrs. Williams and her friend Mrs. Morris are off in Bath. And Jack says, well, please, you know, Hawker, have Ellen make me a little supper and get a bed ready. And Hawker says, well... Ellen is somewhat overtook. So uh, apparently, uh, you know, for whatever reason, she's, she's out of action. Maybe she's decided to make herself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, But Hawkins said, not to worry, you know, he'll make supper and, and Jennings will make up a bed for the captain, except he apologizes that the captain will have to drink beer since Mrs. Williams locked the wine cellar before she left. So it sounds like same old Mrs. Williams to us. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> particular about the things that we know she's particular about. <sighs> well, in the morning, Jack on his own makes his own coffee and fixes his own breakfast. He can't bear to look at Ashgrove Cottage without Sophie there. So he tours the garden and he sees with a little pang of regret, I think, that they are maintained by someone else. And Jack asks the groom Hawker what horses they have in the stable. There's only one, says Hawker. It's Mrs. Morris's manservant called Briggs's horse. And this horse is called Abhorson. Learning that Abhorson is strong enough and big enough to carry Jack's weight, Jack goes on and says, how, how are his shoes? Shoes are fine. Hawker says that Mrs. Williams, and he adds with a curious emphasis, the Honourable Mrs. Morris, are both very particular about Briggs's horse. So Jack's planning to ride this horse Abhorson to Dorset. And Mike, I, I love the name Abhorson that O'Brien has chosen for this horse. In Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, there was an executioner named Abhorson, and I think Garth Nix wrote a fantasy novel with a character called Abhorson as right. well. Mm, all, a little bit of foreboding, I think, for what role this horse is going to play. Let's see. Well, O'Brien tells us the horse is, is powerful, but it's neither intelligent nor handsome, and it crabs across the yard sideways as Jack tries to mount him. And it's, it's funny, it wasn't that long ago we heard about the Berenice crabbing across to Lourdes. Now we have the horse crabbing across here. And he is, the horses, as, as Hawker had predicted, full of beans today. You know, he's snorting, tossing his head, taking this silly mincing diagonal gait sometimes. But Jack kind of, you know, strong arms him into line. And they're, they're traveling pretty well together by the time the rain begins. And I can't help, Ian, as you pointed out earlier, there's a, there's a lot of rain in this homecoming here. Now, O'Brien tells us that Jack's admiring his trees as he's riding off the estate here. But in the back of his mind, it says the part that's not thinking about Woolcombe with, uh, and, and the text says, the family house he'd recently inherited with Sophie and the children in it. Well, the part that's not taken up with that is taken up with, the text says, the delightful prospect of his squadron, the Royal Navy's unattached ships and officers, perpetually forming fresh combinations of possibilities. And, you know, his mind's going around on all these different things, trees, the house, the kids, Sophie, ah, my squadron, who's going to be in that? And he says out loud, riding along, I'll keep the ringle as my tender. <laughs> wow, the naval family is pretty deeply woven into Jack Aubrey here. 
not for nothing, the rain comes down even harder. And Jack, we read, was a man who was normally uh, unusually gifted for happiness when happiness was at all possible. And he eggs the horse on. He says to Ab Horseman, come on, cheer up. The rain's going to end soon. And the horse is still plodding along with this very dogged, sullen pace. Very nicely personified, I think, as O'Brien often does with animals. Jack twists around to reach behind him to get a cloak that's rolled up behind the saddle, presumably to fend off the rain. As he did so, a blackbird shot across the road right under the horse's nose, cackling loud. Ab Horson gave a violent sideways leap, a turning leap that threw Jack with perfect ease. A heavy, heavy fall. Jack's head hitting the stone that marked his boundary. End of chapter one. <laughs> and Mike, wow. after, all these, after all these years and months and thousands of miles and chapters and books, he's just at the boundary of his home and disaster strikes. Wow, what a way to end a chapter. It really is. Oh my gosh. We're certainly a long way away from that somewhat unusual ending of the Wine Dark Sea that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, and, and much more, it seems to me, we're into Patrick O'Brien's really good writing. We're back ashore. We've got Jack and Stephen soon, we think, ashore. Uh, yeah. and, and not just anywhere in the world, but home, like you say, home. And like you, I was wondering, you know, how many books has it been since we've been here? Now, I, I'm desperately looking forward to seeing everybody back together with their families. But here we are, Jack lying we assume unconscious, you know, with oh nobody gosh, around you know, on his own property here. Oh my gosh. It's not a great start, to be honest. There is all this foreshadowing of the different relationships and where everybody might be headed. It sounds like Mrs. Williams and her new friend might have a bit more of a role. And although I don't think anybody likes Mrs. Williams, I'm quite looking forward to seeing her again because she's very quotable. And she and her friend have been mentioned a few times in the text now. So we're getting build up built up to the idea that we're coming back to Sophie and the family and Mrs. Williams here. Of course, the foreshadowing for Stephen and the uncertainty around him and Diana are all even higher. Um, we've got what's going on with Diana. We've got what's going on with Bridget. Stephen isn't even heading home first. He's headed under the call of duty off to London to see Sir Joseph. Sounds like Diana is no longer staying with Sophie. And we haven't heard about Clarissa Oaks either. Mike, there's lots to look forward to and a really exciting first chapter here. There really is. A great first chapter, great writing. And, and I don't know about you, how would you feel about a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, I would like that of all things. <laughs> across the yard sideways sorry there you go Sam it crabs across the yard sideways as Jack tries to mount him <laughs>